You're listening to Marie Claire Future Shapers Live in partnership with Neutrogena. Stand up and being on a panel show, which can be a bit of a bun fight sometimes, it's not a male thing to do. It's an alpha thing to do. Writer, comedian, TV presenter, and all-round superwoman, Catherine Ryan has forged an incredible career in the tough-as-it-gets world of stand-up comedy. So what has she learned? For this year's closing keynote, Catherine Ryan talks to Marie Claire editor-in-chief Trish Halpin about her journey from Hooters waitress to critically acclaimed comedian. With plenty of take-home tips on how to be just a little bit more of a badass in your working life. We'd end today on a high, if it couldn't get any higher, because we're all so inspired. But we're going to throw in some laughs as well. And what better way to do that than by introducing a woman who has built a career in one of the most unforgiving industries there is, stand-up comedy. My worst nightmare. Uh, to many of you, Catherine Ryan will need no introduction. She's a hugely successful comic and presenter, only the second UK-based comedian to have her own Netflix show, which, if you haven't watched it already, please do. It's absolutely hilarious. And she's also a regular panellist on 8 Out of 10 Cats and Have I Got News as for you, as well as co-hosting Comedy Central's reboot of Your Face or Mine with Jimmy Carr. And she's a team captain on Channel 4's newly launched The Fake News Shows with Stephen Mangum, which goes out on Monday nights. Um, born in Canada, Catherine made the UK her home in 2009 and lives in London with her daughter Violet. So please welcome Catherine. Hello. Hello. Hi. Oh. I think we're, we're at the kissing two in this country. Yes, we're at the kissing stage. Hi. <laughs> thank you for yeah. being here. Oh, well, thank you so much uh, you. for coming. You probably, I don't know whether you saw kind of in the mm. foyer and everything, we had all these amazing, empowering quotes from women. And there's one that Cheryl Sandberg said, uh, which is that in the future, there will be no female leaders. There will just be leaders. Yeah. Do you feel something similar about the term female comedians? Yeah. I mean, they always call us that comedian or female comedian we're this like subcategory um, which is fine with me I mean I've always been peaceful and positive about the fact that it is changing and it can't happen overnight but I used to question like remember Talisa with the female boss tattoo mm -hmm. I'd be like why the feet are you the boss or are you not the boss are you like the regional manager of yeah, you're the boss. <laughs> like I don't I don't think um, it hurts my feelings, and I know people are trying to find language. They'll go, what do you want to be called? Should we call you a, a comedian? Should we call, and I don't care. I mean, I've been called worse. <laughs> it's, um, it's changing, and I think female is not a negative uh, adjective. It's like mm -hmm. female, I mean, I like being a woman. I like it a lot, so they can call me that all day. Stuff. Yeah. So you, you said in an interview. Oh, you know what's funny? Oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Go My go friend go Sarah Pasco. This is funny. So she has a book out called Animal. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's like the anthropology of the female body. She, she's incredible. She's a lot smarter than me. It's amazing. But she's so funny about that because she says, "Oh, men don't get that unless it's like a job, like a male escort or a oh. male nurse." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they get escort and nurse, and then we get everything, everything else. Scientist, <laughs> builder, every, okay. Yeah. She's funny. So you said in an interview last year, I want to get pregnant again just so I can breastfeed on Mock the Week. Uh, mm -hmm. You do a lot of panel shows where quite often you really are the only gal. Um, yeah. Have you ever been made to feel like the odd one out, or are they um, no, so I do want to breastfeed on Mock the Week only because I feel that it would be so disruptive mm -hmm. and I get a real kick out of being disruptive and that's why I'm so triggered by videos of like people yelling at a woman for breastfeeding on the bus. Like we're meant to be triggered by those videos but they make me so angry. Um, 
and I think stand-up and being on a panel show, which can be a bit of a bun fight sometimes, it's not a male thing to do. It's an alpha thing to do. And I think for many years, we have been conditioned to believe that only men can be alpha. And it is changing. It's shifting that women can be alpha too. So I grew up in this matriarchy with sisters, and it never occurred to me that things might be more difficult for me because I was a woman. Mm -hmm. It just didn't occur to me. So I grew up just with this <coughs> ignorance, really, mm -hmm. of I'm very privileged as like uh, a white Canadian girl born in the 80s, like things were easy for me. And so I've carried that privilege forward and just <laughs> been like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm North American, which I guess means British people are quiet sometimes when I talk. <laughs> uh, and, the, and then it, it works for me. I, I kind of feel really welcomed and it's always been an inclusive environment at that level. Mm -hmm. Being on television, mm -hmm. a lot of the producers and directors are women mm -hmm. and all the men that I work with are feminists. Uh, it's at the it's at the bottom that mm -hmm. it's really difficult. Like the open mic scene, my oh, sister yeah. took me somewhere in Canada and it was like the most oppressive room that I had been in in my life because I walk around now with this privilege saying it's the same it's equal but if I had been a woman in the audience of that open mic gig it was 24 white men okay. doing stand-up about like fucking bitches and all the rest and I was just like oh <laughs> I mean that's where it's hard and then hopefully if you can bypass that if you can withstand that mm -hmm then it gets easier and it will continue to get easier mm -hmm. and we see lots of more diversity in front of the camera and behind the camera. Mm -hmm. And what about the bits that get edited out to these shows? Is there a lot of those? Uh, <laughs> let me think. I mean, there have been instances, like one recently where somebody was being a bit of an old man uh, <laughs> and I said something about it. And it's amazing how we're taught to stand up for ourselves and speak up, but if you do it, you instantly feel this good girl shame like, oh, I shouldn't have said anything. I should have just been quiet. I shouldn't have been disruptive like that. And I felt sick about it for probably two days mm -hmm. when all I had done is, like, put a pensioner in his place. <laughs> Good for you. Um, we've been talking a lot about resilience and reinvention uh, today. What do you think the world of stand-up comedy can teach us about those two? A lot, I would have thought. Stand-up comedy is brilliant because it's just like rot with failure and rejection. <laughs> um, but there's a certain element of control. So I think that if you are an actress or an actor, as those chicks are wanting to be called now, um, you know, whatever you want to call them, they, there's one rule and they're all trying out to fit this existing idea of what you need to portray on screen that someone else wrote. And I feel really like actors are in a harder position than I am because they don't have as much freedom unless they write. Whereas with stand-up comedy, you can die on stage tons of times and you still have adrenaline to go back and you know that you have a lot of control because you can write a little bit differently or you can learn from it and you can go at it again. And there isn't just one role that you have to fit. The reason why it works for us is that we're, there are loads of different types of comedians, there are loads of different types of sense of humor. You're not gonna be everyone's cup of tea. And when you do stand up, you learn that really quickly, mm -hmm. that failure is fine, and if I'm not right for you, I might be right for someone else. And uh, I really recommend everyone do stand up comedy. Uh, <laughs> even if you don't wanna do that for a job. I didn't wanna do it for a job when I was starting it. I, I didn't. I just thought it would be fun, like a Zumba class. I was like, I'm going <laughs> to go across the street and do some stand-up. I didn't want it to be my job. 
I wanted my parents to be proud of me. And <laughs> it was amazing because it made everything else in life not scary anymore. Mm -hmm. It was awful. I was sick all day. I was really, really nervous. And then I didn't die at the end. And then you realize, oh, I don't really matter that much. And rejection is fine. And it doesn't kill you. And you face rejection and rejection and rejection. And then you just kind of don't care anymore. You become immune to it. Oh yeah, it's wonderful. Numb, numbed to the rejection. Mm -hmm. So have you, has there been a particular moment in your comedy career where you feel like, oh, this is just too hard or where you've had to really dig deep and find some resilience? Um, so no, hearing no at the beginning was a lot more difficult than it is now. Mm -hmm. And again, I come from a very privileged position where if I get projects turned down, like we did a pilot for a BBC Two late night sort of satirical show and they said no. And I wanted to do that with my friend Ramesh and Joe Lysett, but it was okay because we all have other jobs and that's mm -hmm. fine, so we just moved forward. But in the beginning, every job was such a lifeline because I was alone, you know, 3,000 miles away from anybody who loved me with a baby. Mm -hmm. And we were poor then, I mean, Victorian poor. Mm -hmm. Like really, where I had to like be concerned about rickets. I was like, <laughs> damn, I am poor. And um, yeah, the, no was so hard then. I was in a Channel 4 sitcom called Campus, mm -hmm. and it was fun to do, and it didn't get renewed. And when it didn't get renewed, I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I can't be single, I can't leave her dad now. Because mm -hmm. you kind of, you do need to be able to support yourself, and I can't do all the things, like I can't feed us, I can't, what am I gonna do? And that was really hard. I thought about going back to my office job mm -hmm. at Fashion Monitor, where oh. I worked. A little business to business. Uh, <laughs> check it out, they have internships. Um, uh, and then I just had to make it work. Mm -hmm. It's almost really good to be pushed up against the wall because I think, and I hate to be a misandrist, but I think women specifically seem to have this superpower where we can get out of a ton of bad situations. Mm -hmm. Like you, you do as much as you have to do to make it work. Mm -hmm. And now I can't do anything mm -hmm. because I'm really spoiled. Mm. Too many job offers. Yeah, like I just, I think about, I look at Violet, my daughter who's eight years old next month, and she's so easy. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes about having another baby, I'm like, oh, I couldn't do that again. Mm -hmm. But you, I, I can't imagine doing it now because I don't have to do it now. Mm -hmm. Whereas back then, I had no choice. Like, it was either do that or we will die. Pretty much. <laughs> pretty, pretty, yeah, exactly. Pretty much, because I couldn't go back to Canada. I didn't feel like it was ethically the right thing to do or probably legally the right thing mm -hmm. to do because her dad lives here mm -hmm. in Britain. And... Very <laughs> <laughs> considerate. Yeah, so I had to stay here and I had to make it work. I just did not see another option. Mm -hmm. That's amazing, very yeah. impressive. But so... On stage, um, have you ever crashed and burned? And oh yeah, oh, how do you survive that? Tell us about that. Well, it's that. fine with me now. Again, uh, everything's way lower stakes than it was before. When I would die, we call it die on stage if you're not familiar, or like bomb, whatever you want to call it. When I do badly in comedy, I uh, in the beginning it was really difficult because again I needed to get paid, mm -hmm. and I would think I need to stay on stage for the 20 minutes that I'm hired for. Otherwise, I won't get paid, and then I won't be able to get the bus home. I won't be able to, you know, I had to stay. And there was one gig uh, at Up the Creek in Greenwich. It's a really nice comedy club, but it was Christmas, and people had wristbands. I don't know what it is about British people in a wristband at Christmas, but I mean, like, they just drank the bar dry, and they really hated me, like, hated me 
to the point that they weren't even heckling. They just turned around and started their own conversations. And I was like, <laughs> and you can't do anything. You can't come back from that because it's not even directed at you. I just like relentlessly stayed on stage and kept talking at them. And, uh, and that was bad. But then I had a gig. And I think this is why comedians that I know are always really nice, humble people. They don't have egos at all. They're really nice because it happens throughout your career. It happened again at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal mm -hmm. on television. Mm -hmm. Just silence. And then it happened. <laughs> yeah, oh they're very polite. Canadians were like, we will just wait for this to be over. Later they just... <laughs> I was like... <laughs> um, and then it happened, I was opening for Frankie Boyle mm -hmm. at another Christmas thing. I mean, I'm converting to Judaism as soon as I can again. <laughs> Christmas and me. And it was, uh, they were just waiting for Frankie Boyle and I was the thing that was standing in between them and a good time. Yeah. And this, but now I've learned, you just leave. I just left. I was like, nope, no one should endure this. And he like, goodbye. And I left. <laughs> and you still get paid. Yeah. Well, Nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so, so the best way, so if you, if you want to be a heckler, the best way to heckle is to ign ignore is the, the first thing. Please but don't if, do that. If people are like really trying to give you a shitty tough time yeah. from the audience, how do you deal with that? I like it. I like heckling like a lot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's totally fine because... If you've been doing comedy, I've been doing stand-up for 11 years now, so, mm -hmm. you know, it's fine. And if they say something that's ridiculous, like really sexist or just really unfair, or if they're drunk and they're just being belligerent, the audience turns against them really mm -hmm. quickly. And sometimes they heckle things that are really funny and really useful. Mm -hmm. And I like that. And I think comedy is a conversation and the beauty of stand-up and the only thing that really nowadays when you can stream things on Netflix, mm -hmm. so you can watch anything you want on television, the beauty of live stand-up is that something's gonna happen in that room that night that's not going to happen mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. So I like it. Mm -hmm. And do you think us Brits make good comic fodder, mm. good comic material? Yeah, I think you can uh, make <laughs> you can make material out of anything. I mean, uh, I I ingratiated myself, I guess, to British audience when I first moved here by talking about British things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just differences between us were things I would notice about your celebrities, because your celebrities are not famous everywhere. Um, <laughs> they're not. They are not. Especially, like, if you open a Women's Weekly, which you should try not to, <laughs> then all over the world, like, they don't have Towie and they don't have the soaps that we have here. So I spoke about a lot of really niche British things, and I think that's how I really got into celeb culture because it was this commonality that mm -hmm. I had a North American upbringing but all these British things that we could all talk mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. And um, have you ever got into hot water over a, a joke you've made? Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, tell us. Um, oh there was one big one with the Philippines. Oh. Like the entire Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> But I didn't mean it at all. It was, it was like pro-Philippines, if anything. It was about fast fashion, actually, mm -hmm. and how I'm, I'm really against fast fashion. Um, and I don't know if workers are treated really fairly in factories. It was kind of about that. But they misunderstood. They had like this little clip of a joke that I did on Mock the Week that went really viral, and they didn't understand it. And they thought that I had like a cosmetics house where I was testing products on Filipino children. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And I was on CNN over there. Like, it was a big deal. I was like that dude who killed Cecil the Lion. You know what I mean? <laughs> and there is a, a section in the magazine mm -hmm. that we're going to talk about mm -hmm. later with online humiliation, humiliation and how yeah. 
things are a storm in a teacup, but they can just mm-hmm. explode. So that was a bad one. I sorted that out after a while. And then uh, little things, you know, sometimes you say something on stage and it's meant <coughs> to be said in a room and it's in context, it's a joke. Everybody who's there knows it's a joke. And then sometimes if they print that, mm-hmm. it seems a lot more sinister than you meant it. Mm-hmm. And also in the beginning of my career, people didn't really care what I said. And now when things get printed, not only do they seem more real in print, but also you, there's a chance that Cheryl Cole could read it now <laughs> <laughs> or hear about it or see it on TV. And I'm pulling back a little bit from the whole okay. Joan Riversy thing because I think I just, I don't want to hurt people. Comedy is not meant to hurt people. You can be roasting mm-hmm. and you can still do that, but I'm watching it now, you know, ever aware that people could be hurt by it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hurt people. Most people. Um, So you you once said that being a single mum and a comedian go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Tell us how that works. Oh, well, uh, again, I was just really pragmatically thinking when I was young and poor with my daughter. I had to go back to the office, but then, uh, not to like take this into political waters, but you, I was earning less in my office job than a daycare cost. Mm And I wasn't on any uh, benefits or anything, but I just thought like, what? How can you go back to work if you're a single mom with a baby if you don't earn as much at work as the daycare costs? Like, what am I, should I work in the daycare? So I sent them some stand-up clips. They did not hire me. (laughs) I didn't have a CV. I I genuinely tried to be a nanny for a while. And then, uh, which is formidable work, Mm -hmm. I would love to do. But then I thought, okay, well, if I really give this comedy thing a go, which I was doing as a hobby anyway, I was like, I can spend most of the day with my daughter, and then I can either bring her to gigs, or if it's not suitable, like it's a pub or something, or a rough place, I won't bring her, she can stay with her dad while she's asleep. Because mm-hmm. at that age, she didn't like anybody but me when she was awake, mm-hmm. and she would just kick oh. off if I... <laughs> so I did a lot of gigs like with her in a carrier. I did one when she was 21 days old at Latitude Festival wow. in Suffolk, which I'm doing again this summer. Um, and I booked the gig before she was born, mm-hmm. and I hadn't like Googled anything or been to NCT classes. I didn't really know it was difficult to have a newborn. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'll just bring the baby. And I brought her, and I wore her, and she was so small. People aren't used to seeing a 21-day-old baby like in the wild. So she had, she had just these two little legs hanging oh, out the fun. bottom. And I just didn't mention it. I just did the gig, <laughs> and I just like did not address the little baby leg elephant in the room. I was like, this is fine, and it was tough, and, but it, it worked for me because I made it work for me, and I would take her to gigs asleep, and the, I'd put the pram like just off stage and like walk over and rock it every once in a while and do it again. I mean, we just made it work because I had to. Oh, oh. And do you ever test your material on her? <laughs> no, she, she does not think that I'm funny. Um, and she might be right. I mean, she's cool. She's funny. Sometimes I tweet things that she says. Mm-hmm. I never share photos of her online, but the things that she says are really funny. Mm-hmm. And um, she's starting to think it's a little bit cool that she gets to know Sarah Pascoe and Ashling B and all the friends that I have mm-hmm. that are comedians. She, you know, there are comedians that she likes. I'm just not one of them. <laughs> yeah. So what can we learn from stand-ups or what tricks can we steal to make us all a little bit bolder and a bit more badass in our working lives? Um, Well, I think it's what's really the greatest privilege about stand-up is having a voice. And I Mm -hmm. think sometimes we can forget or take for granted that 
not every woman in the world has a voice at all. And so that's why I try to be as aware as I can, as intersectional as I can about mm -hmm. talking about all sorts of things that might not even affect me. I love having a voice. It's so important. Even little things like being cheated on. A lot of times you have no outlet for that except, you know, you can smash the windows out of his car <laughs> as the song goes. But I have this amazing outlet. I can talk about things and it's this power that um, I just feel like you can have a voice whatever job that you go into, whatever your career is, knowing the power of your own authentic voice and not being afraid to use it is just so, so helpful. Mm -hmm. And you, we almost have a responsibility, I think, to, to use our authentic mm -hmm. voice. Mm -hmm. Whether you're blogging, whether you have like a YouTube presence, whether you're an editor, what, whatever you do, your voice is so important. And if you do stand up just once, even if you don't want to be a stand up comedian, you'll learn that even if people don't laugh at you or if people don't like what you've said, that you still go on and you lead your life and it's not the end of the world, so you shouldn't be afraid of, mm -hmm. of what you do. Mm -hmm. Now, um, somebody wrote that you were like the stand-up version of a women's magazine. Yes. And here we are, we are a women's magazine, so I thought I'd bring the, the latest issue of Marie Claire and just ah. see what your, your thoughts are on, on some of the some of the topics well, that we I have in here. Well, I think they said that because I spend a lot of time oh. face down on coffee tables. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. I'm going to start with, um, actually, this one, uh, which is Birth Order, How Sibling Status Shapes Your Life. Yeah, I loved that Because you grew up with three sisters? Two. Two so, sisters. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Birth order shaping your life? Birth order is great and it talks about the eldest and the middle and mm -hmm. the baby and an only child. My daughter's mm -hmm. an only child. Uh, I'm the eldest. Mm -hmm. And you know you read horoscopes sometimes and depending on your level of spirituality or belief in astrology, sometimes it fits you exactly and you go, am I imagining this or is it fair? The, these orders of eldest, mm -hmm. middle, baby, they really they, they really seem to fit everyone that I know. I'm certainly the most outspoken and the most independent mm -hmm. as the eldest, like it says in the article. My sister, uh, the middle child, is, you know, different. <laughs> <laughs> and she turns to her friends in mm -hmm. times of crisis more than her family. She's kind of the peacemaker. And then the baby is this, like, very sultry burlesque bartender in Canada. <laughs> she has this amazing dance troupe called Army of Sass, and it's so cool, like they just dance around in their pants, <laughs> and they put on concerts and things, oh. and my dad goes to them. <laughs> he loves them, and then they have like a, a matinee for people's oh. children. Oh, it's in a, Check out my Instagram, because Carrie yeah. is, half nude on that all the time <laughs> and she's the baby and she's the rebel and she's oh. the one that's fun she's a really good host mm -hmm. she's really creative I'm guessing she's your favorite she, I mean <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> fair enough now we have this actually which is very topical for you this is called Generation Wealth, which was a kind of reportage story um, by this amazing um, documentary maker, photographer called Lauren Greenfield, where she'd spent 25 years documenting our kind of global obsession with wealth. And mm -hmm. you did a TV show kind of I on did. this subject, didn't you? Do you want to tell us about that? Yes. The TV show was for Channel 4, and it's called... Sorry. It's called... Hello. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble by an audio engineer. Are you mad at me? 
Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, it's called How'd You Get So Rich, and it's still available on mm -hmm. all four. And they haven't mm -hmm. told us yet if we're going to do more or not, so like, watch it if you can, because that's all they care about is how many people watched it. Um, <laughs> little FYI, industry secret there. If you hate someone that's in a show, don't let it secretly be on your TV. Because <laughs> you are helping your enemy. <laughs> um, and we just followed millionaires and billionaires around and learned British about ones them all over the world. So okay. we had a lot of British ones, we had American ones, and we just learned about how they got so rich. And I was worried that it was going to be really entitled people from, mm -hmm. you know, daddy's money, but it was, and it was all self-made okay. millionaires, and they were really inspirational. Okay, biggest, so that was a surprise for you. The biggest yeah. surprise? The biggest surprise, I loved them. I really mm -hmm. got on with them, even if we differed, you know, sometimes politically or sometimes... Mm -hmm. There was one boy, if you watched it, you'll know, who like, ah, the trouble with people is nobody walks around with like a good guy, bad guy sign, mm -hmm. and bad <laughs> people do good things and good people do bad things. And there's this one guy who was a philanthropist and he seems really nice and he's smart with business and property, but he drives a different color Lamborghini every day of the week and has a megaphone so that women can hear him objectifying them over the roar of the engine. And then just in case they can't hear, he also has signs that he puts out the window with his phone number and they say like, nice arse. And I mean, it's good. at least they can read when they get in the car. <laughs> and he sponsors a pageant. He was interesting, but I found, I think that even with someone that um, we have different ideas about women. Uh, we bonded on a number of things. You know, we got a show out of it, and he was cool. Things mm -hmm. about him were cool. Mm -hmm. I got along with everyone on some level really well. Mm -hmm. Good. It's always something to connect. Yeah. Um, and then we have my favorite here, hot sex hacks from the LGBT community. Yeah. Does that resonate with you? I mean, I love the <laughs> LGBT community. However, some of those sex hacks disturbed me. <laughs> they were very useful though. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you are going to <coughs> finger a man's ass, <laughs> look, it's in the magazine. <laughs> then you're going to want some advice on how to do that from mm -hmm. a man who has had his own bum hole fingered on the reg. <laughs> <laughs> Will I be fingering a man's ass? No. But it's cool, you know, you gotta step outside the box sometimes. <laughs> Whatever. But my, I, you know, you know how I feel about them. I have no interest in pleasing them in any way. <laughs> but you might. <laughs> and there are some real step-by-step -step oh. tips in there on how to do it. Oh. Oh. Yeah. So, um, so have you, you know, you must you get quite a thrill out of making people laugh. Have you always kind of, at what point, what age did you kind of work out that you were a bit of a funny girl? Well, sometimes I don't make people laugh. Sometimes I make people angry. And that was more uh, prevalent in my early mm -hmm. years. And I didn't understand it. I still don't understand why everything isn't to laugh. It's mm -hmm. like, what's the point? Because I read the news. I know what's going on. And I think the only way to live your life in a healthy manner is to laugh at as many things as you can and to find the humor in everything. So I've always had this sense of humor. Uh, sometimes it was welcomed, sometimes it wasn't. <laughs> but what I definitely get a kick out of is finally finding like-minded people. I love nothing more than hanging around with people who make me laugh. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be making others laugh. I'm just glad when I'm not making anyone angry. And that's when I feel safest. So you know that if you're in a room, like maybe with your in-laws or 
you know, people, I don't know what your in-laws are like, but so, you know when you don't fit in and you're like, oh, everything that I say makes me nervous and I don't want to, I don't like that feeling at all. So I am so blessed that I have lots of comedians mm -hmm. who I can just be. You know those evil texts that mm -hmm. you send only your best friend and just pray <laughs> that your phone never gets hacked? <laughs> I get to be with people all day, every day that I can say things like oh. that to and they say, and we know that we have good hearts and we're nice people mm -hmm. and I just love it. I love, 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 love people making me laugh and making other people laugh. But if you're spending all your time with comedians, yeah. you're just, all you're doing is laughing at it and coming up with better jokes and trying to out-joke each other. Is there out a kind of no. competitive joking I'm not, thing no. going on? We're just like this. Like We just mm -hmm. chat. It's not like a, uh, nobody puts on a big clown shoe and is like, <laughs> okay. It, we're not, it's not like that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I was just texting last night with my friend Ramesh, um, mm -hmm. who I, the aforementioned Ramesh Ranganathan, who uh, I was working on the pilot with. And we're not joking, we're just talking, but he's just so funny. Mm -hmm. jo I, jo I don't know, you don't have to be joking all the time just to be in comfortable mm -hmm. company. Mm -hmm. And that's all it is. So is that what you look for in a man then? Does a man have to be able to make you laugh? I'm not looking for a man, let's start there. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody know that reference? Do you know that reference? Rihanna on the red carpet. Come on, please. <laughs> Someone asked her, like, oh, you're looking for a man? And she was like, I'm not. Um, I, listen, I'm looking for someone with a respectably sized dick who can work around my schedule. <laughs> and my schedule seems to be the hardest part. Okay. <laughs> And, and talking of schedules, yeah. uh, you said you're doing Latitude again this year. Yeah. Yay, what else have you got coming up? I love Latitude Festival. Uh, I'm also doing the, a show called Your Face or Mine with yeah. Jimmy Carr, who's a, a bit wonderful. Mean? Is it a bit mean, yeah. that show? It's quite mean. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting one. It's, a, it's controversial because mm -hmm. there are people who say, oh, you are a feminist and you support, uh, you're anti-body shaming and you support mm -hmm. this and that, but you're doing this show. The show doesn't go for women. If anything, we're easier on mm -hmm. the women than mm -hmm. we are on the men. The difference is consent. People mm -hmm. come on to win money and they want to be roasted, which is a language of love in comedy, by Jimmy Carr. I'm kind of the nice mm -hmm. guy on the show. Mm -hmm. They win thousands of pounds and we're saying that it's evil and shallow to mm -hmm. rate people on looks. Mm -hmm. But if you have Tinder on your phone, don't come to me saying that I'm a bad person <laughs> because it's this world of, mm -hmm. it, it's more of a meta-narrative, a commentary on that world. Mm -hmm. And no, we know that it's mean, but that's the game. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we should be harder on the girls, if anything. Because mm -hmm. going easy on the girls, to me, is just an extension of women aren't funny, women can't have a sense of humor mm -hmm. about themselves. Mm -hmm. And I love the show. I think Jimmy Carr is one of the most incredible men that I've ever known. And he works so hard. He's been really an inspiration to me and really supportive mm -hmm. to, to me. Um, really fought to get me on the show. And I, I love the show. I think it's so entertaining. Mm -hmm. And there's a tour? Is there a tour I'm on up? tour from the autumn. We were meant to start selling tickets this week, but we're going to start selling tickets uh -huh. next week, I think. And where are you going to be in London? Ooh. And when? We Ooh. all want to come. I mean, I don't know. Oh, we don't know. It's not okay. <laughs> It's probably in my email somewhere. Maybe Bloomsbury Theatre. Oh, okay. I don't yeah. know, but it will be on the list. I'll put it all on my website Great. next week, and I would love it if you came, and then we go all around the UK. So. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank mm. you very much, Thank Catherine. you. Thanks for your amazing. Amazing. 
This has been Marie Claire Future Shapers Live in partnership with Neutrogena. Thanks for listening. And make sure you check out some of our previous episodes if you haven't already. These include a seriously motivating talk from life coach Jen Sincero and expert tips on navigating our digital world.